In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jeanette. Let us pray. Gracious God, we ask that the words of your scripture, the words of my mouth, the meditations and the reflections of our collective hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Jesus, our rock and our redeemer, and we pray that you would be faithful to your promises, to be present in and through your word, to be with us and to be for us, to give us everything that we need. We have this in common, oh God, we all need your grace. We need it at every moment. We need it right now. And so we ask for it. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if I had to do the bulletin over again, I would have included the Lord's Prayer for you. And I also would have tweaked the title of our sermon, From the Grace of Repentance to the Sneaky Grace of Repentance. The Sneaky Grace of Repentance. Sneaky because if you're anything like me, you don't often think of repentance as a gift from God to rejoice over. I don't know how many of you woke up this morning and gave yourself a little fist bump and said, yes, I get to repent right now. I don't know how many of you saw the title of the sermon and you thought, you know what, can we just not talk about repenting? Can we just get to the repenting together? Let's just do that. And I don't know how many of you are filled with this exuberant joy when you think about the opportunity to repent. Some of you maybe do, and that is awesome because we ought to. At least that's the picture that we're given here in Matthew chapter 3, particularly the first six verses, that John the Baptist has come and he's preparing the way for the ministry of Jesus. And he does so by doing one thing, calling people to repent. 
Repent for the kingdom is at hand. In fact, this is the very message that Jesus begins his ministry with. And Mark's gospel tells us this. Jesus says the very same thing. He bursts on the scene as an adult and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And people flock. They come in droves out to the desert to participate in repentance. Did you see this in our passage? The people of Jerusalem, verse 5, and all Judea were going out to him, all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. The people from as far away as Jerusalem, from the entire region, they're coming to repent and be baptized. It's remarkable. It makes me think about uh, the time when Kathy and I were living in Brooklyn. I think it was the mid-2000s, but somebody can correct me. Um, when Apple released their first uh, Apple iPhones. Does anyone know the year? Look at that. That's scary. Okay. 07, right? And one of the flagship shops, Apple stores, was in Midtown. And I happened to walk by, and there was a line around the block the day before. People were going to camp out to get their hands on the iPhone. And that's the scene that Matthew is painting for us. People queued up out in the desert with their tents and their sunbrellas waiting in line to be baptized by this dude in a camel shirt who eats locusts. What is going on? What do they know about repentance that we don't know? That they want it so badly, that they see it as a sneaky grace. A few years back, I had the opportunity to take a vision mission trip uh, to a church plant in Berlin. And it happened to be the same year that was the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And so we got to take a church to Wittenberg or Wittenberg, whichever way you pronounce it. Who knows this? This is going to be, I'm showing my ignorance throughout this sermon. How's it pronounced? With a V or a W? Okay, V. Wittenberg. There you go. Good. We got to go to Wittenberg and we got to go to the chapel and stand at the door where Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 theses. Except we got to the door, and there's a little notice next to the door, and it said, this isn't actually the door that Martin Luther nailed his theses to. That one burned down. This is a replacement. And then the guide said, oh, by the way, it probably actually wasn't Martin Luther who did the nailing. It was probably his grad assistant who took the theses down and nailed it to the door. But anyway, they got there. And do you know what the first of his theses is. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The entire life of believers, every day, every moment, a life of repentance. Not drudgery, but fist bumps all around we get to repent. What did Martin Luther know that we don't, that we would see and receive and practice repentance as a sneaky grace of God as we prepare the way for the ministry of Jesus in our lives and in our city. So that's a question I'd like to take up with you in the moments that we have remaining. And two points today. First, we're invited to see the grace of repentance 
And second, we're invited to practice the grace of repentance. Pretty simple this morning. See the grace of repentance and practice the grace of repentance. In those days, verse 1, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What is repentance? Maybe we should start there. Now, I'll give you a definition and then I'll give you a picture. Uh, first, a kind of definition. Repentance quite simply means to turn around. It was originally a military turn, term and it meant you're going one that way and you about face and you go the other. And so in a spiritual sense, the term was taken up to mean a change, a change of heart, a change of desire, a change of mind, a change of will, moving from a heart that is set on one thing to a heart that is set on another. Repentance means a 180 degree move from a heart that is set on sin and autonomy. It, it doesn't mean that you guys on this side are the sinners and you guys on this side are the repenters. That's not what this means. It's just, I got to go one A heart that is set on sin, how about that? Equal opportunity to a heart that is set on Jesus and his kingdom. That's what repentance means. I'll give you a picture of repentance. Some of you know that we recently brought a dog into our household, Ollie. Ollie is about an eight-month-old now golden doodle. And Ollie is awesome, but Ollie needs to learn how to come. And so we've been working a little bit on the recall command, come. And when it works, which is barely ever, it's a beautiful picture of repentance because Ollie is out doing his thing, right? He's in the backyard or he's in the front yard and he's cavorting around and you give the invitation, come. And if it works, there's a 180 degree turn and then he comes bounding at you with this big goofy dog grin on his face, right? And I mean literally bounding because he knows that when he gets to you, he gets the treat, he gets the praises. He gets to be a part of the life of this family that is awesome. What does he do but eat our food and sleep in our house, let us walk him around and pick up after him? Like, it's a good life. It's a repentance for all of me. He's coming back into that. And why do we teach Ollie the repentance command, if you will? Well, because there's going to come a day when Ollie is headed out toward the street and there's a car coming, right? He's headed for his own destruction, and so he hears a gracious command, repent, move away from sin and death, and turn around and come exuberantly back into the life that is waiting for you. Friends, that too is a picture of repentance. And so when we ask, what are we to see in terms of the sneaky grace of repentance, I think there are two things here. We see a people, a crowd, that is excited to turn away from their sin and exile and are even more excited to turn toward the kingdom, right? We see the grace of turning away and we see the grace of turning toward. First, the grace of turning out of a life of what the Bible calls sin, and when we hear that, the repentance is turning away from sin. We say, well, that's why I don't love to talk about repentance. That's why I don't love to practice repentance. That's what you Christians do and talk about all the time, how bad I am and how miserable I should feel about myself. 
And I would say that's not repentance at all. That's a misunderstanding of what repentance is. We practice a kind of repentance all the time, and it's no wonder that when we practice it, we don't get excited about it. Now, this is a kind of repentance that actually underestimates the peril and the misery of our present condition that we're in. Uh, the first I call a whack-a-mole repentance. Kids, you know the game whack-a-mole? Have you ever played it at the arcade? Right? You got the big mallet, and these little heads of weird-looking creatures pop up, and you whack them down. Right? And that's what we feel like repentance is sometimes. Sometimes, every once in a while, a little bit of sin or wrongdoing pops up in our life. I don't know where that came from, but it popped up, so I'm going to whack it back down with some repentance, and then I'm going to go back to my life, and, and I'll be good. Until the next little bit of sin pops up, I don't, don't know where that came from. Hmm, surprised me too. Whack, I'll repent and then keep going with my life and it's all good. It's fine. Whack-a-mole repentance. Some of us practice more the bootstrap repentance, right? That we have a plan to deal with the moral issues of our life and we can handle it. And so repentance is just one more tool in the toolbox that we can grab ourselves by our bootstraps and pull us back up and we'll keep on going, and we'll be just fine. And some of us practice a kind of repentance that is more of a self-pity than sin-sorrow repentance, right? Yes, I cheated on my taxes. It was just a little bit. Do you know how much the government is squeezing me right now? Do you know? You know, right? You know. Do you know how expensive dental work is? You know, right? Do you know how expensive private school is? It was just a little bit, right? And by the end of this repentance, you start to realize that person isn't sorry for their sin at all. They're just sorry for themselves. And they're happy to keep on doing what they do. I'm happy to keep on doing what I do. What do all these kinds of understandings of repentance have in common? There's a shallow understanding of the reality of our position and our standing outside of the grace of Jesus. There's a strong, strong warning from John in this passage. And who does he give the warning to? He gives the warning to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who come out. They're not coming out because they're thrilled to leave exile behind. They're coming out to see what is this new thing that's going on, this new threat to our authority and our autonomy. They come out in their pride. They come out in their smugness. They come out resting on their pedigree and on their position and on their performance. They don't understand the danger that they're in. They don't recognize that they're living in a state of exile apart from the presence of God. And life apart from the presence of God always ends up exactly where you are headed, a future death and eternity apart from God. And so John reserves his harsh words for them because they need to know that they're in danger and maybe you can relate and maybe you need to hear the harshness of John's warning this morning. It's a sneaky grace of repentance to open your eyes to the reality of your position outside of the grace of God and the kingdom of God. And what is that position? The crowds knew it. They knew what they were fleeing from. 
And it wasn't just a few sins that pop up in their life here and there, a few wrongdoings that they've caught themselves kind of sliding into bad habits. They've lived in exile for centuries. And now they're being invited out of exile and into the kingdom. This is what Matthew wants us to see. This is why he paints John as wearing the clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, eating locusts and wild honey. It's a picture of a wild biblical prophet, but even more so, it's actually a picture of a description of Elijah. And the prophet Malachi talked about a day when another Elijah would come, a greater Elijah would come, and that Elijah was going to speak the good news of the end of exile and the beginning of the kingdom. And these crowds knew it. They knew what John was saying when he said, standing out in the desert by the banks of the Jordan, repent. What John was saying is not, hey, come and get a little more spring cleaning from your sins. They had a mechanism for that. It was called the temple and sacrifice. John was saying something new is happening, something bigger. You are being invited out of a realm of life that you know as exile because it's a life that is apart from the gracious presence of God. And it's a life you chose because you chose to leave your God and live in a world that exists apart from His grace against the way that He designed it. That's what exile is, friends. And Israel had lived there as a nation for century upon century upon century, living in a less than life that was of their own making, not just because they did wrong things from time to time, though that was part of it. Listen to the prophets. Read the prophets. They're all over Israel for their refusal to love the poor well. But there's a deeper sin underneath the sin that characterizes exile, and that is a desire to push God out of the picture of our lives. And exile is living in that reality. And so when John said to the people of Israel, would you like to leave exile and come into the kingdom? Yes, please. What do I need to do? Repent? I'm in. I'm all over that. Do we recognize that we, outside of the grace of Christ, live in the very same realm? That the way the Bible talks about sin isn't just the wrong things that we do, though it is that. The Bible talks about sin as a realm of life that we exist in, in which we've gotten exactly what we wanted, which is God off the throne. But we were made to live with God on the throne, and so when we dethrone Him, things go wrong. We're living against the grain of our createdness. And when you do that, it's going to break down. I'm trying to explain what I mean a little bit. When you make that joke at your friend's expense, why do you do that? Because in that moment you had a vindictive desire to hurt somebody that you love? Probably not, right? Why did you make that joke at the expense of your friend? Because you wanted somebody else's approval. No, you needed somebody else's approval because approval of others has become the God in your life, the thing that gives you meaning, You've replaced God on the throne with something or somebody else. There's a deeper sin behind the sin. 
Right? Why did you cut that corner at work? Why did you find a little bit of a way to do some plagiarism to help you get that paper done well and quickly? Because achievement is what gives you your meaning. You're at the University of Texas, for crying out loud, one of the best in the country. And if you don't achieve compared to your peers, then who are you? You see, there's a sin behind the sin, and the sin is a desire to move God off the throne and have our own autonomy in our life. And when we do that, things break down. They always do. It plays itself out in our relationships. It plays itself out in our societies and in our structures. It's why until Jesus comes again, we have a prayer of the people, and the prayer of people can get long. Right? Because we live in a realm that's characterized by the brokenness that comes when we kick God off the throne of our lives and live in the exile that follows. King David is one of the best examples of this. One of the most beautiful prayers of repentance that we have in the scriptures is Psalm 51. Do you know it? King David prays Psalm 51 after one of the biggest messes ever made in the Bible. And you might know this story as well. David is the king of the entire nation of Israel. He can have whatever he wants and whoever he wants. And so he takes a woman to be his wife who is not his, who belongs to another just because he wants her. And so he takes her and then he has her husband killed so that he can have her. And the prophet Nathan brings the sneaky grace of repentance to him and confronts him with the reality of his situation. And so David prays, and what does he say in Psalm 51? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And here we go. Against you... Oh God, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is wicked in your sight. And you ought at that moment to say, what? Against God only? How about Bathsheba? How about Uriah? How about the nation of Israel you're called to lead well? Against God only? What is David saying? He's engaging in a bit of Hebrew hyperbole. Right? He's not suggesting that he didn't sin against those people, but he's recognizing that there's a sin underneath the sin. And the sin is an offense against the loving God who created him and invited him into a world in which he remained on the throne. David recognized that in supplanting God and standing up on the podium, he committed the greatest sin. And it's a sin that leads to exile. The sneaky grace of repentance is an invitation to recognize the brokenness and the peril in which we exist outside of the grace of Christ. And if that is our true condition, it is a grace to see it. If we are all headed toward the car that is coming down the road, it is a grace to hear the word come and to turn. It's the first sneaky grace of repentance to see the condition that we are invited out of. The second sneaky grace of repentance is to see and recognize and embrace 
the condition into which we are invited. John the Baptist and Jesus gave the call, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is here. Those people flocked to John to receive repentance, not just because they got to be done with exile, but because they got to exist in the kingdom of God's very presence. We'll talk about the kingdom a lot in the Gospel of Matthew. But we can see at least in this passage that the kingdom means this, God is back and God is in control. Did you catch that in Isaiah's prophecy? Let me find it for you. In Matthew's recalling of Isaiah's prophecy, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And we're so accustomed to hearing that word, those of us who are followers of Jesus and sit and listen to sermons and read the scriptures, we're used to hearing the word Lord and we think Lord equals Jesus and we keep on reading, right? Think for a second. If you're these first century Israelites and you hear the prophecy, prepare the way of the Lord, who is the Lord? It's Yahweh. It's the God of gods. And he's coming back to be with you and to do for you everything that he's promised. That's the kingdom. So John the Baptist says, listen, somebody greater than me is coming. The one whose sandals I'm not even fit to untie. Watch what happens when he gets here. And these people think they know what they're getting when God's come back, God comes back. And so, repent? Absolutely. Absolutely. If I get to be in the kingdom with God on the throne, we're going to get our land back. We're going to get our inheritance back. We're going to get our pride back. We're going to get our identity back. We're going to get our purpose back. That's what they think. And Matthew says, you don't know the half of it that you're going to get with this king on the throne with Jesus who comes. And so he's going to spend the rest of his gospel inviting us to see the beauty of what we get with life in the kingdom with Jesus. Wait till we get the Sermon on the Mount. Just a little preview, heads up, the Sermon on the Mount is not just a list of all that God expects us to do that we can't do so that we embrace Jesus who did that for us. There's some of that there, but it's much more than that. The Sermon on the Mount is a picture of life in the kingdom into which we're invited to live and experience, and it is a beautiful life. It is a compelling life. Right? Jesus walks around, and he draws people to himself, and he heals them, and he casts out their demons, and he forgives them to say, look what life will be in my kingdom. When I'm back in control, when I am on the throne, when you give your life to me, and step into my kingdom, wait till you see what life's going to be like. Friends, the sneaky grace of repentance is that it shows us what we get to move out of and what we are invited by God's grace to move into. We can see it just in this passage. John says that I baptize with water for repentance. This is verse 11. But one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Right there is enough. 
for the people to flock and beg. Repentance, absolutely, let me into the kingdom. Thank you. One who will baptize with fire and one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, right? A baptism of fire, the cleansing baptism of fire. How many of you feel the weight of your sin and your guilt? How many of you, maybe not all the time, but sometimes feel the shame that is attendant with your guilt? You know that you're in the wrong and you know that you can't fight your way out of it. And you know that you can't do enough. You can't do enough to live up to your own standards, much less the standards of a holy God. You know it. And you can get in the shower and turn that water as hot as you want it to go and stand there as long as you can bear it. And you know it's not going to burn away the stain that is inside. And Jesus is inviting you into a kingdom in which because of his work for you on the cross, not only are you forgiven and objectively not guilty before God, you don't have to feel shame anymore because in God's eyes, it's gone. Can you imagine just for a moment a life in which guilt, true, legitimate guilt, and its attendant shame is gone? Banish from your experience forever. Friends, that day is coming when Jesus brings his kingdom in full, and you have the opportunity to experience that truly with him now. Would you not be willing to do anything to get there? And do you know what Jesus asks you to do? Just turn around. Just turn around and come in. I've done everything for you. A baptism of fire and a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine a week in which you wake up on Monday morning and you think, you know what? I am tired of snipping at my kids with impatience. I'm tired of being that dad. I'm tired of being that mom. I'm tired of being the roommate that always lets my roommate do the dishes and find some convenient excuse for why I've done that. I'm tired of being that way. I'm ready to change. And you pray a prayer, and God responds, you know what? That's awesome, because you have the Holy Spirit. You can change. I'm going to help you. Let's do this. Friends, that is life in the kingdom. Not fully and perfectly yet, but truly. A baptism in which we are given the Holy Spirit, an ability to be someone other than who we are, the person who we are that we so long to not be. Friends, these are just a couple of the benefits of life in the kingdom that Matthew is whetting our appetite with. If we have eyes to see, would we not start to recognize repentance is the greatest gift the world has ever known? To come into God's kingdom through faith and baptism for the first time, but to experience that as a rhythm of life, an experiential reality. 
of the opportunity to move out of the sin which has held us in bondage and captivity and move into the life of freedom that is offered in the kingdom. A life without shame, a life with an ability to change, a life in which Jesus is present. Did you catch that? That he will baptize you. Is there anything more intimate than baptism? There are a few things that are more intimate than baptism. But it is an intimate activity. John is saying Jesus is the one who will baptize you. All that you think you want from him in his kingdom life, that's all well and good. But you know what you really get? You get him in this life. Do you want to repent? Do you want to turn and leave a life of sin and exile and turn and exist in a life that's characterized by the very presence of this King of kings and Lord of lords? John says, the invitation is there for you. Turn. Turn. Friends, we're out of time. We didn't get to the second point. But Matthew's a long book, and we've got time to work through this together. What would it look like to practice repentance? If you've never done it before, if you've never recognized that there is a life that you long to live, and it's a life in which God is on the throne in the person of Jesus, and you're ready to make that decision, then do it. Ask him to be your Lord. And then come talk to me about being baptized and having that initial experience of repentance into the kingdom. And let's work on practicing rhythms of repentance together. We do it every Sunday. There are wonderful prayers that teach us how to come clean, not just with the sins that we do, but the sins underneath the sin, the sin of wanting to dethrone God from the center of our lives. We pray those together, and then we receive the assurance of pardon and the good news that we exist empirically in God's kingdom because of Jesus' work, and we can exist experientially in that kingdom as well. Let's continue to practice it on Sunday morning. Let's learn how to engage rhythms of repentance together. We'll talk more about that. But here's what I want to end with. We're also invited to stand in John the Baptist's shoes and participate in the ministry of extending the invitation of repentance to our friends and to our neighbors and to our city. And what would that look like? And I would suggest this for our friends and our neighbors in our city who don't yet know, have no idea that a kingdom of heaven exists for them. What we get to do as a primary way that we extend the invitation of repentance is to live as humble and joyful and exuberant members of that kingdom of heaven in a way that they would look and see what you people have I want. Do we need to warn them with John's language? Maybe at some point. I think that language is more for ourselves than for our neighbors, at least to start with. Maybe the opportunity to figure out what it means to have a true humility that's combined with a true joy because we're out of exile and we're in the kingdom because of Jesus. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words that are truth. And we pray that we would receive them as such, that it is a gift and a grace 
to be able to see our sin and turn to you because of your righteousness for us, Jesus. And so we want to end with a note of thanks, and we'll do that now saying thank you, Jesus. Amen.